Well, good evening, beloved. Good evening to all of you. My name is Jim Cece. I'm the pastor of Campus Bible Church way over on the West Coast in a place called Fresno, California. Anybody know where that is? Yeah, not the end of the world, but we can see it from there, I'll tell you. But nice to be with you. How many of you were here yesterday when I spoke most of the day? Yesterday, good. Nice to have you back. Thank you so much for that. Well, I I want to bring you a little bit of greetings also from my family, my wife of 43 years who is still my girlfriend, and she still rings my bell, and I get to tell you about that tonight. And of course, I have three daughters or some place in heaven for a father that raised three daughters and who are now parents and have children of their own, and we've had 23 foster children. We love raising kids, and we're blessed to be able to do that. My name is Jim Cece. It's kind of a strange name. It's spelled C-E-C-Y, but that's not really my name. It's a made-up name. You can Google it all you want. You'll only find a few of us because the name was changed. My real family name is Chikachi, C-E-C-C-A-C-C-I. Again, that's not the real issue. But perhaps my other family name might be known to you because my other family name is Capone. How many of you know who Alphonse Capone was? That infamous gangster way back in the 20s and 30s, died in 1948, my second cousin. But in 1971, God reached into that criminal family, the Capone family, and he pulled me out. And you know what he did? He made me a part of your family. Isn't that great? I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. So I know I may look like a stranger, and I, but I want to tell you something, I may have his belly, but I don't have his heart. Right, brother? I don't have his heart. Okay. And I want to talk to you tonight as blood, as family. Can I do that? Instead of you kind of treat me like I'm the lone ranger that's going to shoot my civil bullets and right off into the sunset, and you get to say, who was that masked man? I want to go heart to heart with you. Is that okay? I want to go head to head with you. Is that all right? And if I have to, I'm going to go toe to toe with you if you're not going to listen. Because I'm the kind of guy who'll come right back and get in your face because I love you. You know why? Because we're blood. So you're going to listen to me all night, right? Or at least for the next 30 minutes. The reason why I'm here is not because I need another speaking engagement. I've got enough speaking engagements to choke an elephant. I don't need to come out here to the East Coast to do that. What I need to do is to talk to you like blood, like family. And that's what we did yesterday. All right, and we came out here to talk about a subject that needs to be talked about. Why? Because there are 2.5 billion pornographic emails sent out today. That's why. And I'm not worried about the world out there that's going to hell in a handbasket. I'm worried about my family in here. The struggle that you're having, that I have, that we all have, to be bombarded by all the sexual stimuli and all this world that's telling you, look, if it feels good, do it. You only go around once in life. You've got to grab all the gusto or body parts. You can. That's what the world's telling us. And I get to tell you that I've been there, and now I'm here. I know that life before Christ, and I know that life in Christ, and i got to tell you, there's a world of difference. Amen? So I want to engage you somehow. Now, I can't go through all the time of six hours that I spent with everybody yesterday. 
I don't have the time. I wrote a book on this called The Purity War that you can pick up out there. Instead of going out to dinner afterwards, spend 18 bucks. I don't take any of the money. It all goes to the ministry anyways. And spend it on something that you can feed on for a long time. It's got lots of material in there that's going to talk to you about God's design for sexual purity. Based on 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where the Apostle Paul went into a very idolatrous and sexually immoral place called Thessalonica, who were engaged in sex with people of the same sex and the opposite sex and animals. That's the culture he entered. When a mama would take you down to a house of prostitution when you were 13 years old and would say to you, daughter, go and have sex with a woman or a man or an animal. Enjoy yourself and tell mama all about it. That's the culture that the Apostle Paul was dealing with. So don't tell me it wasn't relevant when he wrote these words. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And that each of you know how to possess his own vessel, his own spouse, in sanctification and honor. Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Consequently, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gave his Holy Spirit to you. Oh, it's God's will that we be pure. He called us to be pure. And you know what's great news? Is that he will empower us to be pure. The only issue is whether we want to be. I raised daughters, fully human daughters, pastors' kids with hormones who dated men with hormones. So I know the routine. I don't have my head so far in the sand that I'm no earthly good. And I raised them through that struggle, that process, that understanding that God designed their bodies to be given to the Lord first. And in some day, in the bonds of holiness and matrimony, to give their bodies to those men in their lives. And I know they do it often because I have a dozen grandchildren. And it's a good thing. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. But I get to talk to you tonight about how I engage them as a father. And I want to talk to you that way. Is it, I want to kind of come and if you want, I'll be your grandfather or I'll be your brother, if you will. I don't want to be a pastor tonight. I'm not going to preach at you. I'm going to engage with you. A number of years ago, uh, and we'll go into all the details of that, but my wife and my daughters were threatened by, uh, by uh, somebody that was stalking them. And it's a, a nightmare uh, of sorts. And so they designed our home with a lot of security alarms and a lot of lights and all these things that would go off and all kinds of security we had to have because of these very real threats uh, to our family. And so... All throughout their teen years, my daughters had to leave the house and enter all the codes that they would have to do and so that the alarms wouldn't go off. And I thank God for those alarms because they had to come in before curfew. But one of my daughters, who was just a delight and a godly young woman uh, and was quite an athlete, she was a national swimmer, and she learned, because she was so trim, to kind of be able to sneak through that alarm because it could only open about that far before it went off. And she just told me this like two years ago. 
She's now married and has children of her own, and her boyfriend, her husband now just smiled, and <laughs> so forth. She said, Dad, nothing happened. We would just go out and sit on the front lawn, but it was so fun to bypass the alarm. <laughs> I want to talk to you about some security alarms that God has in your life. A number of years ago, when I was in seminary, I had a Bible study, and we had 400 single people in that particular study. I loved working with singles. And my wife and I had such a joy. Some of them are still our friends from that many years ago. Uh, and I want to tell you, I wrestled through their questions. Some of them who were formerly married that asked the question, so what do I do now that I've experienced frequency in sexual relation with my spouse and now we're divorced or now we're widowed? And I have those same passions that we were able to righteously experience, but now what? It's a fair question. Oh, we have that question from single people that said, so what do I do with these feelings? You know what I mean, guys? Those feelings, that stuff that happens. And the ladies, what do I do with that desire to be cuddled beyond cuddling? That desire to be touched beyond touch? What do I do when that guy reaches for those parts that belong to my babies and my future husband? What do I do? It's a good question, isn't it? And then the question of all was when somebody came to me and said, why is God so frustrating? Why didn't God put a switch on us and we just turn it on on the honeymoon, you know? You say, I do, and suddenly, whoa. <laughs> Why didn't he do it? Or why didn't he just make it so, you know, all you do is to make a baby is you just kiss your spouse and turn your wedding ring three times for a boy and three times left for a girl. What is this thing called sex? And why in the world would God give me a sex drive when I'm 12? 13, 14, 15, <laughs> even older. It's a really fair question. Anybody want to know the answer? Anybody here? <laughs> Somebody raise your hand. Nobody, anybody want to know the answer? Three of you, thank you so much for that affirmation. But I'm going to give it to you anyways. He did it because he wants to get your attention. Because when we understand that sex is not about inserting body parts, when we understand that it's not biological, when we understand that human sexuality is about oneness, because God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. He is Echad, he is one. And because God is one, he designed you and the church to be one. One plus one plus one plus one plus one equals one. And then he gave you a driving passion for oneness. Don't miss this. It's about oneness. And that's why you don't get to say that men have a stronger sexual drive than women do. If you're talking biology, yeah. You know why? Because men are like microwaves. Doot, doot, doot. They're ready. Women are like slow cookers. They slow heat and slow cool, you know? 
They're designed differently biologically. You, I, if you don't understand the physical side of that, you can ask pastor later. You're going to do a seminar. Got pictures and all that stuff ready for that slideshow. No, okay. But it's about oneness, and women have as much drive for oneness as men do. It's what drives them inappropriately to give their bodies to a young man. That desire to sense that oneness, that unity, because we live in a culture of disconnection. It feels like we're connecting biologically and maybe even emotionally, but you're not connecting spiritually. It's a natural drive. Because sex is God's idea. And let me tell you something. It's a great idea in its right place. Not just for making babies. But for physical oneness, emotional oneness, spiritual oneness, procreational oneness. Even recreational oneness. God designed sex to be fun. Because he's a fun God. And I say to married people, if you're not having fun, get some help. I love telling you as singles that my wife still rings my bell. She's still my girlfriend. My kids will see me with my wife holding hands and often say, get a room. <laughs> my daughter told her husband, I want you to treat me like my father treats my mother. I can't think of a better thing to have heard from my daughter. Because I came out of a family where my father was a womanizer, his father was a womanizer, his father was a womanizer. They were all making babies all over the world. And I come to you with that spirit that God designed these alarms. Number one, when you feel that drive for oneness, physically, emotionally, and even spiritually, it's God calling you to walk in oneness first with him. John 17, verse 3, that he desires, Jesus came, that you might have an intimacy with God. You know why? Because you have a God-shaped vacuum in you. And it's not sex-shaped. It's not money-shaped. It's not degree-shaped. It's not man-shaped or woman-shaped. It is God-shaped. And you're going to try to fill it with everything else, and it's going to be empty some of you have tried it with drugs. Some of you have tried it with sex. Some of you have tried it with money. And you just feel this sense that, you know, you, you thought it was going to be a steak and it was a McDonald's burger, you know? That's what he's driving you to. So every time you have a desire to have sexual union physically with somebody, it's God saying, hey, remember me. And draw close to me. Psalm 46.10 says to be still, to take a Sabbath in your life. To stop kicking. It's the Hebrew word that, that means to stop this. Whatever it is that you're kicking against. And know. And the word you know is the Hebrew word yada. It's the same word for having sexual relations. Wow. Oh, be still and know intimately. The same word that it says and Adam knew his wife. God wants you to know him let me say it this way, and don't misquote me. He wants you to know him sexually in the sense of intimacy. In the sense of, of, of relationship. Because sex is not body parts. It's not biological. That's only the symbol of the substance. 
In the same way, picking up a communion cup is only the symbol of the substance. The same way that a wedding ring is only the symbol of the substance. You can put on a wedding ring and not be married, right? So it is with sex. You can have sex and pretend that it's substance and it's not. Oh, be intimate with me. That's number one. When you have that desire, hear it, and God's getting your attention. More we could say about that, time's running. Number two, God is calling you to walk in oneness with your fellow Christians. Well, see, you have this desire for physicality. You have this desire for sexual oneness. Fine, in the right place, in the bonds of a holy matrimony, fine, enjoy So what now while I'm waiting for that? Or what if he calls me to be single? We'll get there. But you've got to let that inward passion stir you to fellowship. Hebrews 10 says to not forsake the the synagogue. What does it sound like? The synagoguing. That's what you're doing here. You're synagoguing. You're gathering together and stimulate, he says, one another to love and good deeds. Oh, listen, sex is about stimulation. If you need any questions about that, again, ask your pastor. He's got all that information. And he says, I want you to stimulate one another to good deeds. And the word is the word for cattle prod. It's a big, long stick with a nail in it. You know what I'm to do with you? I'm to stimulate you to good deeds, to walking rightly in the fruit of the Spirit. Watch this. Listen to me. Look at my big, brown Italian eyes for a minute. My job is to stimulate you to walk in the Spirit. Why? Because that's the biblical definition of sexy. You want to be sexy? Walk in the Spirit. And manifest the fruit of the Spirit. Ladies, hear me. How would you like to meet a man who loves the Lord God with all of his heart, his soul, his mind, and his strength, is walking in oneness with God, and manifesting the following attributes? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Ladies, how would you like to meet a guy like that? Tell me yes. Yes. I didn't hear it loud enough. This is your chance. Tell me yes. yes. Gentlemen, imagine meeting a lady who loves God with all of her heart, soul, mind, and strength. Watch this now. And is manifesting Christ-like love to put up with you. Joy in the midst of your crankiness. Patience with you. Oh, boy, do they need it with you. Kindness. Goodness. Gentleness. Self-control. Gentlemen, would you like to meet a lady like that? Yeah. You want to be sexy? You want to be sexy? than walk in the Spirit. And that's my job to stimulate you to do that. That's what, when I have this desire as a single person, right, then that's your drive toward that. So let the alarm go off, and have God say to you, now what are you doing about stimulating yourself and one another? Huh, I bet you've never heard that in church. To good deeds. Stimulate one another to good deeds. Prod each other to walk like Jesus, to look like Jesus, to talk and act like him. One attribute, one fruit at a time. That's number two. 
Because you know why? You will never do well in marriage if you haven't learned how to love the unlovely. You know, you may think when you're dating somebody, oh boy, that person is perfect, you know? But here's what's going to happen. You're going to get married, and two days into the marriage, she's gonna, you're going to find out she, she wakes up with dragon breath. <laughs> and you're going to find out that she's not so good looking. That the rest was like pancake this and, you know, masqueraded that. And, and you know what? And you don't look so good with your clothes off either. And you're going to find that life is going to unfold, you know, as the years unfold. Ah, uh, you've got to learn how to love the unlovely and measure them by the right things. And if you haven't learned that in fellowship with one another, stimulating one another, enjoying one another, learning how to, to love the unlovely, because there are going to be times in marriage when you look up to heaven and say, really, God, her, him? And you learn that as a part of your sexual drive. That's secondly. Anybody with me tonight? Three of you. Five of you. All right. Let's go to number three. God is calling you to pray regarding your marital future. Now, I've talked to hundreds, really thousands of singles. When you have that drive, when you have that desire, you wake up in the morning, or you're out through the day, and you go, oh, man, I really would love to have sex. You may not say those words, but your body's crying out, you know? Then you get on your knees, or wherever you are, and you begin to respond to the promises of God. Because the promise of God is this, is that first of all, he calls some of us to be single. Let me tell you something, listen to me carefully. All of us are called to be single, and when he calls you to be married, it's only temporary. Because when you get to heaven, you'll be single again. So singleness is the eternal norm. Did you hear me? We live in a culture where if you're an older single, they think there's something wrong with you, when the truth of the matter is, marriage is only temporary. Now, to some people that are married, they're grateful for that verse, but the bottom line is, you're normal. If God calls you to be single, I'm going to show you how you deal with that, if I have the time here, and I forgot what time I'm supposed to end. It's 8, 9.30? All right, so we go on. <laughs> So to some of us, he calls us to be singles. And here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 7, 1. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. In other words, if you can get away with it, don't get married. Praise God for singles. I don't treat you like there's something wrong with you. It is the call and the timing of God. Some of you are late bloomers. I thought I was called to be single. My wife thought she was called to be single. We were dating each other. No, we weren't. We were ministering together, teaching Bible studies together. We didn't even know we fell in love. She was just my best buddy. I just like hanging with her. I still like hanging with her. I just get to hang with her in her bathrobe. But she's still my girlfriend. I didn't even know. We were just ministering together. And I'm getting, and I'm finding myself missing her when we weren't studying the Bible together and praying together and ministering to people together. I wanted to creep in. 
is you start out with God. If you're calling me to single, then you'll give me the grace to be single. But ah, he says in the next verse, to the married, each man is to have his own wife. If I call you to be married, get married, even if you don't want to. If he calls you to do it. And if you don't know he's called you, get some help. That's why we are there to shepherd you through this. There's nothing wrong with you if you're called to be single. And there's nothing wrong with you if you're called to be married. But you make sure it's God's calling. How do you know that? You get on your knees before a holy God. Because he says in Ephesians, don't be ignorant as to what the will of God is. It's not like he's hiding his will for your marital life on this Easter egg. And he's hiding and going, you're getting colder. You want God's will? He's going to show you. Ah, but if you want your own will and not God's, he's not going to stop you. He's going to make you a free will agent and he'll let you get married even if you're not supposed to. And too many have. And he'll let you stay single when he calls you to be married. Too many have. Because of the baggage in their lives, because of the fears that they have, they've refused to trust God. So that's why you pray. Okay, alarm number three. Do I have at least five people with me? All right, good. Let's go on. Number four. Uh, and by the way, the passage that you do on that prayer thing is where he says, uh, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality and that each of you know how to possess his own vessel, watch this now, his own spouse in sanctification and honor. May I say this just for a minute? That when God measures a woman, he doesn't put it around her body parts. Puts it around her heart. Ladies, when God measures a man, he doesn't put it around his bicep or his wallet or how he makes you feel. God measures that man by his heart. And you need to learn how to look for what God looks for in a woman. You need to look for what God looks for in a man. Again, the fruit of the Spirit. Alarm number four is that God is calling you to learn self-control. See, the one thing I can say about Al Capone, besides all the murderous intentions that he had, and he was an evil man. I don't want to hear your Capone stories, so I don't like to hear them. But he was a man without self-control. He wants you dead. He wants you dead now. If he just waited long enough, nature would have done the job for him. It's like a baby. I want that watch. I want it now. It's like an immature person. I want that car. I want it now. Can't afford it. I'll charge it. I want sex, I had a young man say to me in my office. He told his girlfriend, I have needs, baby. I wanted to call my cousin Guido and take care of his needs. <laughs> I can't wait. I need you now. And if you love me, you'll give me your body. And any man that says that to you, you're done with him. You're done. Father Jim says, Pastor Jim says, Brother Jim says, you're done. Don't you ever lay that on a woman and expect God to bless your life. Because if you truly love her, you want God's best for her and not yours. And in the vernacular of the scriptures, you're a selfish pig. I'm not sure where I find that in the Bible, but I'm 
and you're messing with somebody else's because she belongs to God. My son-in-law, who was dating my daughter at the time, was just so in love with my daughter, and it was very cute. And one of my hobbies is pistol shooting because it runs through my blood. So I trained guys in, in competition shooting, accuracy shooting. And so at the time, his name is Kyle, and he came out, and the book tells about this. It's a really a cute story. And I had my 45 uh, pistol on, and uh, I don't shoot when I train. I just train. And uh, so I was training him in all different aspects of stance and this and that and front sight issues and so forth. And he finally said, well, I want you to shoot. I said, I'm not going to shoot. He said, please, just one shot. So I kid you not, here's what happened. This is a guy that's in love with my daughter. And so the target was 66 feet down. And I took my pistol and I just did this instinct shoot. I just went, okay, Kyle, here's what you do. Boom. It was the single most perfect shot I have ever made. I think an angel got a hold of that bullet, popped it right through the sky, down in and punched out the center of the target. I pulled it toward me inside. I'm going, yeah! But I looked at him and I said, now Kyle, and his eyes were that big. I said, Kyle, as long as you stay 66 feet away from my daughter, you will be just fine. <laughs> You're messing with somebody else's. She doesn't belong to you. He doesn't belong to you. He belongs to God and he belongs to his future spouse. That's what you pray about. Self-control. Wait. Waiting, my friends, ready, is a form of worship. Did you know that? It's a form of worship. The Hebrew word to wait is the word for hope. When we talk about the blessed hope of the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Titus 2, 11 to 14, when it says, they that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. Isaiah, remember, chapter 40. Or when it says, wait for the Lord and wait patiently for him, Psalm 37. It's the Hebrew word that speaks of worship. If you can't learn to wait for the return of the Lord, or let's say, you can't wait for marriage, wait for sex, wait, wait, wait. How are you going to wait for the Lord's return in the midst of? Waiting is a form of worship. And boy, I want to tell you, if you haven't learned to wait sexually, you'll not learn to wait financially. You'll not learn to wait in dealing with your children. And I'll tell you what, I've raised a lot of kids, and there's a waiting period where you're waiting for God to get a hold of their hearts, yeah? Because they're stinky little sinners, even mine. You're waiting, aren't you? for them to walk in the Spirit. You're waiting for them to walk right with God. You're waiting for them to do the right things, You're educationally in every other way. If you haven't learned to wait in life, how are you going to wait for things of God? That's one of the reasons, alarm number four. Number five is that God is calling you to immediate Christian service. Has uh, somebody got a Bible with them? <laughs> I would hope. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 32 to 35. Would somebody stand and read that, please? Listen to this passage, and, and let me see what version you're reading it from so I can follow you. Anybody going to do that quickly? Time's running, and I'm going to get kicked out of here really soon. Somebody raise your hand. Thank you. Would you stand, please? 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 32 to 35. And stand up so we can hear your voice, would you please? Do you, do you know what version you have there? Uh, yes, Good, perfect. That would be great. Thank you. Yeah, 732 to 35. Listen carefully. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how he 
What an amazing passage. I'll invite you to look at it again. You read all of 1 Corinthians 7. Here's what he's saying. When you are single, you have undistracted devotion in order to serve the Lord. Wow. When we ministered to our 400 singles, that was the strongest percentage of people in the church that served the Lord in the church. Because we had a high emphasis of that. And part of the things that I taught them was to the degree that they're involved in Christian service, to that degree they'll be less sexually frustrated. That's a high motivation. Because that's what the scripture says. Ladies and gentlemen, I am distracted. I, I love being here with you, but I, my wife's been texting me love notes. And I'd rather be hugging on her than speaking to you. I'm distracted. You know, I have a daughter that's pregnant, and I, you know, we're, we just found out it's a, another little girl, and, and you know, and, <laughs> thank you, Lord. <laughs> but I'm distracted. You know, I, I, I love being here, but when I go overseas, uh, I, I write or call my wife two or three times a day. That's a little hard in Sri Lanka. So I write her love notes. Why? Because I like her. It's not an obligation. And I say that because I want that for you. But when you're single, and I remember being single, I had freedom. I wasn't in bondage. I didn't need to call Karen. I could go anywhere. Oh, I love being married. But you have undistracted devotion. And of all you're thinking about, ladies, let me just bother you a bit, is the next boyfriend you got to have so you've got some arm candy in your life because you can't do life without somebody hanging on to you, then I say to you in the vernacular, get a real life of ministry, of fulfillment by doing something that lasts for eternity. Oh, the kiss may feel good for a moment, but do something that lasts. Thank you, dear. To immediate Christian service, where you're engaged in what I call a health process, of fellowship and doctrine and worship and service and evangelism and discipleship and prayer. Standard fare, right? Book of Acts, right there. Then, then number six. God is calling you with this drive he gives you to learn how to develop intimate friendships. The very tension of sexual tension is a driving force, not only intimacy with God and fellowship with God's people, but watch this, listen to me, learn how to be a friend. Your sexual drive was designed by God to teach you how to be a friend. You say, well, show me a chapter and verse on that. Thank you for asking, I'll take some time to do that. If you're going to get married, in fact, I'm leaving for Israel here not too long from now, and we do a Hebrew wedding ceremony, um, and which we actually, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, I do a Hebrew wedding renewal. And I remind them that when the Hebrew person got married, they would first of all pronounce the Shema, 
Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then the man would parade around the woman, and in the Hebrew language, he would say, I marry you. I marry you. I marry you. And they would be under a chuppah, a, a canopy that would represent the majesty of God, the sovereignty of God. Why? Because she was a stranger. And he would lift up the veil and say, eh! No, he'd lift up the veil. <laughs> and he would pronounce to her, I will, in the spirit of Echad, oneness, I will become your kabbalah. The word means your bosom companion, your guide. Now, they were strangers. Do I have a couple of minutes? Okay. What are you going to say? No. <laughs> but let me ask you, do I have a couple of minutes? Okay. What they would do is they were just strangers. It's the Hebrew word reah, thou shalt love thy stranger. That's the word. As yourself, your neighbor. They knew nothing. So they had to start their marriage, and Deuteronomy 24 describes this, by learning facts about each other because they didn't know each other. It was arranged marriage. And they made a covenant before God that they would move through the steps of friendship. Here's how you build a friendship. You learn how to ask questions about the other person. Not a narcissism that says, that's enough talk about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think of me? And some of us are like that. But being sincerely interested about facts. When you start dating a person, sharing with a person, you start relating to a person, you learn facts about them. Found out my wife likes yellow daisies. So you don't go out and buy pink roses just because they're cheaper. You learn to deal with facts. I found out that my wife doesn't like certain things and she likes certain things and how do you think I got her attention? I did what she likes. How will I know? Because listen, there's only two ways to understand a woman. Nobody knows either of them. You better learn how to ask questions. And so it is with men. We're very confusing and we change our minds all the time. Then you do something. That's the next Hebrew word. You've learned facts. And once you learn how to ask questions to develop a friendship, then pretty soon you sacrifice. You know, she likes malts and you don't. All right? But you can't afford two things, so you put two straws in a malt and you grin and bear it. Because you sacrifice. You know, she likes Hallmark Channel and you're just gag at it. You know what? Buck it up and learn how to sacrifice. You get it? So then you develop that over the years, and she keeps changing. Listen, I go home to a different woman every night. 43 years, because she's changing. Oh, the moment she had children, she changed. The moment she had grandchildren, she changed. When you get a dozen grandchildren, you change. Uh, and, and my job is to discover this new woman. Wow. It is so much fun most days. 
And then pretty soon over the years, and this is why I'm saying that, you become, after learning facts and sacrificing, that's the Hebrew word ahav, then pretty soon you become kabbatith. Year, soon, wrong. Decades. Decades. You know what a kabbatith friendship is? It's a friendship where if one person dies, part of the other person dies with them. I will miss my wife when she dies. I'll miss reading my Bible with her every morning. Her and all of her glory and her beautiful bathrobe. <laughs> I'll miss that. I'll miss my buddy. Hanging out with her. Part of me will go. Part of her will go. That's what they made a covenant before God to become. And you learn that as a single. You're not going to. This idea, you're my best friend, um, you know. You know, I was watching a Mariah Carey special. I, don't ask me why. <laughs> and, and I was amazed at the end of the concert when she looked at everybody and she said, oh, I love you all. You're all my dear friends. Oh, yeah, try calling her up and you'll get arrested. <laughs> no, you're just neighbors. You're not in any way a friend. And we loved, oh, you're my BFF. And no, my kids, when they're going through this, was like, no, she's not my BFF. She's my, she's my BF. And now, now she's almost, it's like, how many categories of friends? Ladies, you drive us nuts. But you get it. And that's why God gave you a sex drive. Let me quickly end this because of my throat, because pastor's going to cut it if I keep going here. Okay, so <laughs> alarm number seven, the last one. God is calling you to a life of contentment. See, when you have that desire, it's God saying, be content. It's kind of like, you know, you're hungry and you don't have money. You know, it's kind of like you have, you, you know, you, you're walking to work in the rain because you can't afford a car and God says, be content. That there's a need in you. There's no question. God, I want a husband. God, I want a wife. Cry out to him. But then learn what Paul said. When I've learned to be content, how? Because I can do all things, even be single, through Christ, who strengthens me. I can do this single thing. I can do this loneliness thing. Because loneliness, biblically speaking, is the disease of emptiness. Adam's in a garden, remember? He's in a garden. And, and he's fine. He's walking with God. He's got everything you think. What else do you have? A great job, no thistles. And you walk with God. Oh, man, what a life. No, wasn't enough. And he said, it's not good for man to be empty, the Hebrew word for lonely. And I will make him a helper that fits. That's the Hebrew expression, suitable. And then what does he do? Create a woman? No, no, no. Brings the animals to Adam. The animals. Why? He says, Adam, I want you to name the animals. So that Adam would recognize he's lonely. Don't miss this, young people, older people, single people, married people, all of us. Loneliness is a good emotion because it tells us there's something missing. And Adam finally figured out something's missing and God puts him to sleep and from his rib, not his head that he might dominate her, not his fist that he might hurt her, but from his heart, the rib right next to him so he could stand next to her in unity. Why? Because God is one. 
and he creates this woman. And he gets up out of his sleep and he marches around her. And he didn't say, I marry you, I marry you. He says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She is Isha because she came out of Ish. We're one. And then the Bible says, and they were naked and not ashamed. And let me add to that, and they had a great time sexually. And God went, wow. One plus one equals one. Give God a hand, would you please?